Take the guesswork out of your cannabis shopping with the ECS DNA kit by Endocana Health. If you take pride in your canna nerdiness or are just canna curious, this kit empowers you to find more about the best cannabis choices. Right now, you can save 25% off your DNA test at endodna.com using promo code POD25. Your purchase includes the Endo DNA Collection Kit, Endo Decoded Report, personalized cannabinoid and terpene suggestions, and Endo Align products matching in your state. There will also be suggested dosage guidelines and optimum methods for inhalation or usage. Once you know your personal ECS data, you can shop Endo supplements tailored specifically for you. And right now, Endo DNA is celebrating their new patent with a buy one, get one offer on their Afika Soft Gel lineup. And since I know that many of you struggle with sleep, I want to highlight Afika Unwind, created to support health sleep cycles using patented proprietary formulations of hemp-derived CBD, terpenes, and essential oils. If sleep is eluding you, sweet dreams are in your future. Buy one for yourself and get one for a friend at endodna.com. And don't forget promo code POD25 at the checkout for 25% off your DNA test kit. We knew we wanted to create a brand that meant something, that had a story and a purpose, and it came from real life. It wasn't created right. with executives saying, what's going to sell? Our brand was simply the evolution of our story. This is The Cannamom Show, a podcast chronicling the inspiring stories of real women in the emerging cannabis industry. Your host, Joyce Gerber, mom, lawyer, political activist, has been speaking with women from coast to coast and around the world who are leaders in the revolution of cannabis and caregiving, continuing on her mission to lift up the stories of the women creating the cannabis industry by sharing their canna stories with you. So go make yourself a cup of tea or roll yourself a joint, sit back and learn something new about this magical plant on The Cannamom Show with Joyce Gerber. From the Tip O'Neill Studios in North Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's the Cannamom Show. Now here's your host, Joyce Gerber. Welcome back to the Cannamom Show. I am Joyce Gerber, and we are so grateful you're here with us today as we continue in our mission of crushing that stigma around cannabis and caregivers, one canna story at a time. All right, so Dave, my head is still spinning. I was at a canna law webinar this morning. Right. And um, I don't know if everyone knows Shailene Title, the former commissioner of the um, one of the Cannabis Commission in Massachusetts, now runs the Parabola Institution. We've talked about this before. She's doing a lot of policy work. She's really amazing. But she she was there. But then another attorney from New York, Fatima Afia, she just wove this entire story of like America and cannabis and criminal justice, and just it was making my head spin, Dave. So it's all connected. And it's a sad story, right? You were you and I were talking about it before we started recording, but the the use of cannabis to oppress certain parts of our society goes way back. Well, I mean, the cannabis kind of came along a little bit after slavery. Early. Yeah, so but, we've talked about different pieces. I talk about 10,000 years in history. We talk about it kind of showing up and being here and how it being part of the foundation of the United States because that was something that people were mandated to grow. But Oh, in the Constitution being written on hemp paper, things like that. But I never understood how foundational it is until today, I think. It and, makes and how and how our country developed with enslavement and what came of that afterwards. Yeah. It's really a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah. but my question to you is with the the can we say mass legalization, the sweeping legalization? The legalization that we certainly didn't have before. Is that a sea change in terms of marijuana being used as a weapon to put down minorities and such? Well, it continues to be because surprisingly, it is still being used by law enforcement. And that's what's really sort of confusing. And the idea that our, I didn't do very well in criminal law in law school, but (laughs) the idea that our criminal, um, our prisons have been expanding, multiplying, expanding across the country for many years since probably the 1994 bill, I don't know when Democrats wanted to seem tough on crime, and the idea that there are so many people in 
our system because of cannabis. So many, Dave. Yeah. And it's, and I mentioned this to you earlier today, but the, that documentary, which came out in 2016, 13th, about the sort of the, the history of the 13th amendment before it came along and then after it came, it, it, it makes a very persuasive case that, that slavery ended in, in name, but continued in many ways. And it has to do with, you mentioned before president Nixon and the war on drugs. And then you, you have know, to end the war on drugs. Like, you hear, it's just over. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's heartbreaking. You hear some of these stories about people that have spent most of their lives because they got picked up like with a joint in their pocket. And that's not an exaggeration. The stuff like that really happened. I hope and, it, that still doesn't happen, but yeah, you never know. I think it's still, so this is what she said. So I didn't know this. So in the 13th amendment, where we, you know, constitutional, no more enslavement. There is a clause that says it may be applicable punishment of a crime when been convicted, which kind of comes back to cannabis, that if you're convicting all these people of cannabis and then using them basically in prisons as, again, back to capitalism, labor that's not being paid. I don't know, we've created a yeah. very bad cycle based on a false narrative about a plant from starting in 1619, when this is sort of the thing I, I kind of tied it, so enslaved people were the ones who were actually in the field growing the hemp that was mandated by the king, basically. Mm -hmm. He said, come over, go to America, grow hemp. And then they had enslaved people starting in 1619 who grew this plant, who had all the knowledge, who knew how to use it. And then the criminalization of it, it's all tied together. It's very sad. And I don't know, I know but we're going to, that's like, it's policy work. I mean, basically it's government using cannabis as a weapon. And now we talk about using it as a tool for, for good, but I'm not sure how that's going to. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like a conspiracy, It, but an open site, it, it's, it, it's not like they're doing it in secret. It's just, it is scary. And yes, we, we are a country who is the greatest in the world when it comes to percentage of people incarcerated and it's not even close. <laughs> So again, if we can't change the way business people talk or think or do the idea that we could undo structures of business underneath that by getting rid of allowing everybody out of prison who is in there for cannabis, like seriously, for real. And I know that's a political thing, but that would be a crumbling of a system that doesn't need to exist. And then I don't know you go for that. How can you actually be in prison for the same thing that people are making a lot of money on? Yeah, it's staggering. It's amazing. Anyway, so that's my that's my new thing. Anyways, I'm going to go back after the show and listen more and learn. But it was just spinning my head, Dave, spinning it. And I'm going to uh, my Northeastern Law Women's event on Friday. So I'm going to talk about this. Very good. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Spreading the gospel of yeah. cannabis and law. So I was actually going to talk about gambling because I've been like obsessed with the idea that gambling is everywhere in Massachusetts and you can't even talk about cannabis. But mm. maybe next time. Have you seen it? I'm sure you've seen it. Well, it's impossible to miss, right? And, and there, there are moments when I've heard my 10th ad for sports gambling, when I say to myself, Hey, it might be fun to do some sports gambling. And then I'd say that that's not a good motivation to just, it's not a good hobby to take up right now. It's the house always wins people just know that. <laughs> but that's the conspiracy. It's starting again. Again, cannabis isn't bad for you. Gambling is really bad for you. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Whatever. We, I don't know why we can't share our story just like everyone else's. That's what's making me frustrated. Mm. Why can you market that and you can't market the story of cannabis? Mm. Mm. People, anyone listening? Anyone? <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I'm not going to talk about gambling, but on a happier note. All right. This episode is actually being recorded in early May, even though it does not feel like that in New England. I can't even explain this to you people if you aren't here. <laughs> the weather, Dave, the weather. Yeah. Oh. It's supposed I, to get nicer though, right? Yeah, I think so. Anyways, yeah. I'm taking a few weeks off. I'm leaving. I'm going to Arizona for my daughter's graduation. So I'm taking some time yeah. off and I'm going to see the Grand Canyon. So I'm going to have this episode is going to be out at the end of May. So if we say anything that sounds weird, it's just because we're being recorded earlier. I mean, it's not that far off. A few weeks, but yes. Yeah, just, I don't know. Maybe it's going to get sunny and hot in a couple of weeks. All right. And just a quick right. reminder, I'm having an event June 15th, Mom event in Boston. Now it's all in my show notes. I've been to my newsletter. So if you're in Boston, if you want to come and meet me and some other people are going to be speaking there and just have a nice night out in Boston, come join us June 15th. Very cool. Wait, are men invited? Sure. Oh, okay. Well, now we're talking. It's a networking thing. Okay. But given the ladies the power to talk about this, I, I don't know. I don't know how you change people's hearts and minds, but apparently it's stories because this gambling story is everywhere. So we're telling our story. Absolutely. That's, what, that's what we I do every week. 
every week. I'm obsessed with the game. Like, I don't understand this. Like, I feel like I'm in an upside down world. It doesn't even make sense. It's well, do you have a moral objection? Do mm-hmm. you really have a moral objection to gambling or is it just sort of more of a practical, like, I want, if you want, I want to give my money away and feel good about myself. I'll do that. You'll feel good if you give your money away. It isn't just about gambling. That makes you feel good. I know everyone's like, oh, it's about the feeling. It's about the feeling. But when you do stuff for people, when you're kind and generous and give stuff away, you feel awesome. Try that. Well, <laughs> but it, it, let's be consistent, right? Like I agree, I agree with you. Like cannabis is a helpful thing, but there are some people that say, if you want to put that in your body, great. I'm not, I'm not taking issue with you, Joyce. I wouldn't imagine to do so, but isn't it kind of a similar, a similar philosophy that if they want to gamble, fine, know what you're getting into. I mean, if you want to blow 200 bucks and you go out of the casino and you have a good time that night, eh, was that really something we should be prohibiting? We're getting far afield here. Sorry. Again, I don't know. I think it's boundaries. I've been hearing more and more about people, the psychological issues, the things that go on with gambling, why it works, why it doesn't, and how it is a thing that actually can drive people to desperation. Because, again, we know nothing. If I go back to anything, we know nothing about our human brain. We do know that gambling is addictive, very addictive. And the easier you make it, the less friction you put between you and anything, the easier it is to fall into a situation that you can't get out of. So... I've been hearing more and more psychologists and people working with addiction who are talking about this. The thing, it's a wave. It's coming, people. The easier, if you could sit there and make 20 little like hits during the day, you're going to, younger, younger people are going to be into this and it's going to be whatever. I think there needs to be boundaries. I'm a mom. No, I agree. There should be more boundaries. There should be more regulations, just like there's our regulations on cannabis. We treat it like plutonium. Treat, why don't you treat gambling like plutonium also? Well, it is, (laughs) it is pretty highly regulated. And most of the ads I hear do include a message for Gamblers Anonymous, which is maybe not that helpful. But I'm not saying it's good. <laughs> Mind you, I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying uh, let let people gamble if they want to. It's not the end of the world. I think it could be. Anyways, <laughs> I, we disagree. Okay. I, I just, All I right. feel very strange. I'm like, it, it's everywhere. It is so normalized. And the more you normalize something, which I'm trying to do for cannabis, because I believe it's good for us. And we are, it's a medical situation and the story as we've proven goes back to like the founding of the history and gambling is addictive. And I don't know. Well, it's, it's we would argue, but I would argue both yeah. things can be true. Absolutely. And they aren't, yeah. the two things aren't necessarily related, although yeah. it feels like it sometimes, but yes. Yeah. And I'm not even just the addiction. I don't know. Again, for me personally, if I want to spend $50, I don't know. I don't get any I don't get any satisfaction. I guess that's me. I don't get any satisfaction out of it. When I go to like live Las Vegas or the lights and the alcohol, I actually feel kind of nauseous. So it's just not my world. So it's not my thing. It's not my thing. People, in case you can't tell, I don't like gambling. <laughs> so I'll right. see you at the casino this weekend. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'll see you at the casino this weekend. I'll see you there. Yeah. <laughs> my brother worked on it. So we have a oh, disagreement right? on this show. Oh. Um, anyway, and that's all of the story. All right. all right. Um, so I don't have a culture corner, but I was at the bong and pong event this week, which is sort of cultural. Oh, well, <laughs> let's say that qualifies. What, what was that? Was it literally what it sounds like? A pong? It was a, fu- it, it was a fundraiser through in Haverhill at a country club where they had like imagine college, I guess. I don't know. There are ping pong tables everywhere. There were teams and it was a fundraiser and it was cannabis focused and organized by Carolyn Pinot of STEM dispensary up in Haverhill. And it was the one sunny day we've had in weeks. And I sat outside with my friends and we sat on a golf course and there was food and it was just lovely. It was a lovely day. Very cool. Love it. Yeah. I did not play um, ping pong, but our guest was there and I didn't even see her. So let's introduce her. So thanks for indulging me on that random long tangent on gambling. <laughs> I'll go anytime. I mean, it's it, it's hard not to talk about because you're right. I mean, it is here and it is in our face. So anyway, I and I, I will bet you that things don't change anytime soon. You see what I did there? Sorry, let's yeah. get to our guest. <laughs> All right. Welcome to our guest. Okay, today. Today, we are speaking with a candy cannabis maker from Massachusetts. She is the co-founder and CEO of the first licensed cannabis manufacturing company in Massachusetts and is focused on providing premium products with quality, integrity, and consumer focus. Her entrepreneurial spirit has driven her life and with her husband, she set out to create the cannabis products she couldn't find, but knew we needed. Lucky for us in Massachusetts. Here today to share her entrepreneurial journey, her transformation from dare kid to can of professional, and what she's learned from all those gummies and chocolates. Please welcome Angela Brown, co-founder and CEO of Coast Cannabis. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me today. So excited to be here. 
All right, so sorry, I missed you at the bong and pong. I saw your setup though. <laughs> yeah, that was a great event. What a turnout. I'm not surprised we missed each other. There were so many people that came out to support such an amazing event. It was colorful and fun. And anyway, next year, it'll be fun. All right. And it was actually a, literally a nice day and it felt good to be outside. So it was in all the around. middle of a rain, two rainy days. It was pretty nice to have the clouds part for a couple of hours. But the cannabis gods. Okay. Let's just start with you. All right. So let's, just, what were you doing before Coast? Let's just kind of start there. Well, where were you coming from? How did you get into the industry? Sure. So before starting the company T-Bear with DBA Coast Cannabis here in Massachusetts, I was in the technology space uh, with a focus on more business development, sales, et cetera. So I was not in manufacturing. I did not have a previous life in cannabis. What I was, though, was a consumer. And I was at that a disgruntled and unhappy consumer because as someone who was coming into cannabis a bit later in life and really coming in because I witnessed firsthand for myself the, the medical benefits of it. And I can definitely go deeper into that story. But I was a medical patient, went into the dispensaries early on here and others states and had the products and was absolutely shocked at the lack of quality. Now I'm, I'm speaking focused on edibles. I think everyone can tear apart each category. For my focus on that, it was edibles because that's what I was consuming. I found that they were helping me medically, they were helping me get off of some of the pharmaceutical medicine I was on for years. I was becoming a better person. I was absolutely loving it. But what I didn't love was the choices that I had in the market, high sugar, fructose corn syrup, refined sugar, all these bad products that you learn through school. And as you get older and more so with the access to the internet and everything, these ingredients are not good for you. These ingredients uh, cause cancer. In other countries, these ingredients are banned outright. Yet in America, they're allowed here in our cereal. So as I'm learning- in America, becoming... America. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But as I was getting older and I was starting to be more cautious of what I was putting in my body, I couldn't make that decision that if I'm going to allow cannabis into my life daily as a wellness product, I can't take it in the form of sugar, bad products. I always liken it to the idea of putting your vitamin between a Big Mac. If mm. the only way you could take your daily vitamin- was that you had to eat of a fast food, you might rethink that daily vitamin because you're not quite sure if the wellness you're getting out of it combats all the crap you had to eat around it to get good, to it. Good point. And that's how <laughs> I felt with the edibles. Yeah, okay. So we set out to make our own in our, our home, just supplying ourselves. Don't care what you're talking like early. like This would be probably 2014. Oh, so early. Okay. So, so you're in Massachusetts. Where were you that? Where are you now? And where were you then? Or how did this? How did you, Always your in best... Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah. So where'd you start your journey? So journey started in my kitchen. Okay. Uh, <laughs> making my own products. Went up to Maine. We spent some time up there doing a lot of R&D. And you know what it was, is really just honing in on more of that craft side because we weren't at that point, it was more, I just needed to make medicine. I wasn't right set out with, I'm going to start a cannabis company and, and, and sell it to the masses. It was and were, you making, were you starting with jellies? Were you starting with chocolates? What'd you start chocolates. with? Chocolates okay. and baked goods at, at home in the, in the kitchen. But what it was is that in my kitchen, I had more organic, all natural ingredients. So that's okay. what I made these first batch with. And when I'm sharing them, I'm using them. I'm feeling obviously great. It's much and better. Kind of back up though. Did you know like what you were dosing? Like, did you have, did you understand all that back in the day? I understood it and we were, I'd say, I understood it. Did I have a way to calculate it? Not at first. Okay. <laughs> there was definitely a lot of back of the napkin math, building out a calculator. If I'm starting with this input and this is my, my usage and my loss, et cetera, et cetera, they should be about this. So obviously when you're you can, consuming your own products, you can be a little willy nilly with, with your dosing. Well, no, because we, no, I've actually, this is true. I talked to a dad who had to give it to his kid back in the day. So he would create it, the brownie. He had no sense of how really potent it was or not potent. He himself would take a portion of it, figure out how he felt, and then give his kid like a half or a quarter. I can't remember, but that, that that's medicine. That, <laughs> when that And that's, you, you do what you got to do. I think we're very fortunate in Massachusetts that the earlier labs here, they did open themselves up to allow consumers to drop off products. So whether they were homemade or mm. you just wanted to test something you bought for Smart. being yeah. sure because the market was so new, 
that's what we started. So that was something that we started very early on. And okay. we made sure that stuff while I was making it at home for myself, and it didn't really matter if it was a little overdose or underdose for me, we really wanted to figure that out. And were you infusing the butters? The, oh, were you actually infusing? Uh, it would depend on the recipe. So oh, really? it was always a fat, but it would depend if you're <clears throat> doing chocolate. You don't really want to add oh, any true, butter right? to your chocolate. So you got to figure out another medium there. So at home, you would see a lot of people kind of the smaller scale use like MCT oil and stuff okay. like that, oh, which smart. you can obviously grow and in, in using that ingredient still as a, as a, at a larger scale, but Basically, we set out to make sure we started testing stuff. So that was the first step. And that just came from, again, consuming our own. What it really snowballed into without even realizing it was this desire to create a company out of this. You gave up weekends, you gave up nights, you started kind of canceling social engagements to focus on making this product, to educate myself. And were you to- doing this by yourself or were you doing this with at this time? I was with my husband. Oh, it's the whole time. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we're, we're, I founded the company alongside of him or he alongside of me. We're in it, to, in it <laughs> together. So we're woman owned, family operated. We're very, very proud of, of what we built. And I think it shows that from day one, we've always been doing things the right way with the testing, even before it was stuff for sale. And the snowball really happened when the light bulb went off and we said, Hey, why don't we, why don't we? do this. And at that point, adult use didn't exist here. We only had medical um, and neither the, my husband or I had anywhere near the capital to open right. medical, nor did we have the desire to do it all. Because in our opinion, no, no one, no company in the world does it all, right? They start small, they buy. They I, I, again, kind of back to Massachusetts policy. That was a mistake getting it, it all in it. One, whatever. But you were, so you were there, you could see it. You were trying to get in, you're with your husband. I give a huge story. I'm like at 12, 2014, 2015. Yes, so, exactly. <laughs> so we right, were so, about to move. We were about oh. to pack up and go to Maine. Oh, Maine you were? Caregiving program. We thought, hey, let's let's quit our jobs and give it a try. We did not. We, we hesitated a little bit on that move to Maine, but it was probably a blessing because very quickly thereafter, word came out that the question was going to make the ballot. Right. That, that there was a chance it was going to pass and it was going to be the model we wanted which was this decentralized model because from the jump, we knew we wanted to create a brand. We wanted mm-hmm. to create a brand that that meant something, that had a story and a purpose. And it came from real life. It wasn't mm-hmm. created in a boardroom right. with executives saying, what's going to sell? Our brand was simply the evolution of our story. Right. And we felt that that was how you were going to see better product, better quality product in the market was this decentralized model. So when that happened, we decided we were going to stay put in Massachusetts and we we're going to give it a go. Okay. We set out to be the first independent product manufacturer and we're very happy that we were able to achieve that milestone. And where, and where, who, how did you find your location and where are you actually manufacturing and how did they work with you? Did they, were they excited? Were they not excited? What did they think? Yeah. So we're, <laughs> we're in Wareham and okay. you know, I will give a shout out. Wareham has been a great community to us. It is home to a few other cannabis companies here. We found it. So it was very early on. We were probably one of the earlier groups going to towns asking them, would you allow cannabis to site here? So it was late 2017, early 2018, we were starting to reach out. Basically our first approach being that we bootstrapped everything through provisional. Only funds that we've raised have been through friends and family. So we've really put everything that we had into this business And we knew we didn't have the ability to overturn a town. We needed to go where we were wanted. That's smart advice. That's actually smart advice. It is smart advice. I think, unfortunately, sometimes people, when I'm sitting and I'm hearing the frustration of operators who who are dealing with these hurdles, whether it's still at municipal level or just getting through some of the special permitting, a lot of times it's the town that they want to be in, which I would love. I commute over an hour to get to my office every day. I would love the nothing more than to be set up in my neighborhood, to employ my neighbors. I live in Dorchester. I would love that so much. Realistically, manufacturing in Boston doesn't make sense because of the cost. And going through cannabis manufacturing in Boston really doesn't make sense because of the layers that the cannabis board has put in trying to open. So for us, it was that idea of go where they want you 
unless you have the funds to change minds. And we didn't. So we started looking at towns that had medical already because the regs had some stuff in there stating they can't say no, et cetera, et cetera. Then you had to look at how the town voted because that was something in there too. So we kind of just started the spreadsheet. Okay. And it was 351 towns and it was voted and it was a lot of work. But again, that was a lot of stuff we did on our own because we didn't have the funds to pay a lawyer to do that. It had to be late nights. It had to be weekends. It had to be that commitment if we wanted to make it happen. So you're so okay. So you're working. You have a job, right? And you're setting up this new business. And but you and your husband are doing this together. So at least get time together. I guess it was. It was. (laughs) I would say we we might be each other's only friends now. I am realizing that as we're celebrating. I started the company in 2017. We've been operating since 2020. So coming up on three years of actual operating, five years having the company, I'm realizing we are each other's BFFs. Because- but you were together during the pandemic, so you had something to do. All right. Oh, yeah. So uh, are everything. All right. everything. Well, my husband works at home too. So we're here. We don't do the same work though. All right. So you're here. You're so you're down in Wareham, which is kind of near the Cape in case people yes. don't know where it is. It's a lovely area. It's a nice place to be in the summer. Yeah, <laughs> it, it can be. It's a little quiet in the winter, but we still still suggest you to come on down. Less traffic, yeah, a little bit easier to get here in the winter. It's beautiful. Anyways, all right. So that's where you are. All right. So let's kind of go back to your relationship with cannabis. You kind of alluded to it. What was your real relationship? What was your family's relationship with cannabis? How did this kind of come to be? And I guess how yeah. was how was the transition when you decided what you're gonna when you decided to open up a business in this world? So my relationship with cannabis has been a, a hate love. Okay, and I say in that way because. My first understanding of of cannabis was what you learn in school. Dares you kind of alluded, and I've talked about before is not that it was everything, but you really you when you're taught things and there's no one there telling you opposite and kind of going with family. Only one of my siblings is a, a heavy consumer, so she was already kind of the ostracized person in the family too because of her use. And my mother was was did not use it, did not speak about it, did not think it. And still to this day, it's a little bit of a conversation battle with her to fully understand what we're doing here in this industry and why why we're fighting to to continue legalization. So when I started out my life, I really had that mindset, cannabis, weed, it's going to make you lazy, mm-hmm. bought into everything they told me. But it was wild because everyone around me was consuming it. So while I was hearing these things being told to me, you're kind of watching the opposite happen. You're like, well, that person's kind of cool. And Everyone doesn't seem like they're a, a going off the deep end or whatever. It's but again, like, it it's like that cognitive dissonance. They like create in your yes. mind. You're like, what? It doesn't seem right. <laughs> exactly. And but it made it easy to say no. I think in social settings too, it's easy to say no. I never felt people down your throat. You want some? No. Okay. They pass it around. You had anyone force me or make me feel uncomfortable. So I never, I just said, it's not for me. But all those, it's not for me. It's not for me years. I was going down a path of being prescribed pharmaceuticals because very early on in my life, I was dealing with sleeping and digestion issues. Mm -hmm. This is stuff that started back in high school. But when you look at kind of your schedule of being a teenager and then going into college into your early 20s, your schedule is pretty flexible. I could skip a class. I could make my schedule where classes didn't start till nine. Mm -hmm. So the idea of not getting good sleep and dealing with instant stomach pains in the morning I gave me time to deal with those and then get to class. What was a rude awakening is when I graduated. I'm first and only in my family to go to college. Definitely came from a a troubled background, did not have a lot of resources. Very proud of myself. I've always been, I'm going to do it. I'm going to succeed. So when I graduated from college, I'm all fired up to start climbing that corporate ladder. And what I'm realizing is your work schedule is not flexible, especially when you're first starting out as a young person. And having the excuse of I'm tired, my stomach hurts, especially as a female, does not go over well. And you often get the eye roll. It's that time of the month again, yada, yada, things we shouldn't have to deal with, but it's the perception. So I felt that I was really needed to figure something out. So I went to the doctors. They prescribed me immediately to pharmaceuticals. Here's a sleeping pill. Here's a digestive pill. Take them daily. So what, what, what year was this? What year were they starting to prescribe you medications? This must have been in 2013. Oh, so like before, okay, before even cannabis met. Okay, yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this was actually probably 2012 because I was only a couple of years out of college. Okay. When I, when I went in. So 2012. 
And I did it for a couple of years, but it was not working. The sleeping pills, I wasn't sleeping. The digestive pills were not digesting. So if anything, I was almost just experiencing the negative impact of a sleeping pill, which is extreme hangover, grogginess. All along though, my husband was a very avid cannabis consumer. And it's something we often butted heads over in our relationship. When are you going to grow up? When are you going to stop smoking weed? Is what I <laughs> ask him, right? And he would turn to me and say, you should try it. And I would say, not for me. And that would be our normal daily occurrence. But as we were getting, we're probably approaching 2013, early 2014. And I reached my wit's end. And I knew, listen, no one around me is dying. There's obviously more talk happening. We had medical pass, but nothing opened yet. Okay. I got nothing to lose because what the path I'm on right now is only trying to increase my pharmaceutical intake. And I don't want that. I'm not even 30. So I tried it. When I say my life was saved, it was like singing the good gospel. I'm walking on sunshine the next day. I literally slept. What'd you take? It was an edible. And I just like something. It was was something an an uncle made. (laughs) It was not tested. (laughs) It was homemade, tasted like crap definitely was way overdosed of what I needed to take for that first time. But I, it was amazing. The sleep, the way I felt. And I knew at that point, okay, I got to listen. And that's then, interesting I, because it's like that idea that you get so used to, I say this all the time about being like a, a stressed mother of kids and like drinking and like, you just get used to feeling that way. Like that's the truth of it. You just think that's how life feels. And then you don't feel that way. And you're like, what? You took another the words option. Out of my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> that was exactly it. I felt as a, a woman, not even 30, drinking, of course, everyone drinks and I was drinking and all that, feeling like crap again, not sleeping and kind of looked and said, I didn't know this is how, like, this isn't fun. I didn't know this is like the stuff around you, you can't control, but my own body, I can't control. And that felt really bad. And Obviously, the the effects I had, the sleeping and digestion, but the ripple effect, right? My mood, my my weight gain, my appetite. I was eating like crap. I just was not who I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And it was crazy because with cannabis, things changed in my life for the positive that it wasn't even working on. When I started consuming cannabis, so my way is first edible, and then I was quickly introduced to concentrates, like form okay. of dabbing. Okay, And that was what got me on board because as a person, I don't love smoke. I don't love campfires. Like I just don't love smoke. So that was, I think, an easy way for me to always pass up being past a pre-roll joint, whatever it was like, "Mm, not for me. When I got introduced to different ways of consuming cannabis and found, wow, I really like the way I feel when I'm consuming, after I consume, I don't feel like I'm walking around smelling like it. I really leaned in to, to concentrate. So I love, that's how I consume every day is concentrates and edibles. So you but- are evangelized. All right. So we're like, I'm going to run out of time with you. All right. So, so you're working with your husband. What did you, your family think? So your husband, so your husband's on board. Obviously he's psyched. Yeah, you- they, <laughs> they thought we were crazy. We both okay. quit our jobs within two weeks of each other to write our business plan. And they thought we were absolutely nuts for doing it. Okay. That's awesome. All right. All right. So you're working with your husband, you're doing your thing. So let's kind of like just shift like micro to um, Massachusetts. You got the first license. There must have been a lot of work involved with that. I can't imagine. And you must have gone to a lot of um, cannabis commission meetings. Yes, all I'm of sure. them. All of them. All right. So <laughs> well, sure. I think think we have, we have a record, but that was our whole thing, right? We quit our jobs. We didn't have money. We said we had time. Okay. So we showed up to every meeting we could to uh, be in that room. All right. So that was kind of how you're spending your time. And what did you kind of learn? Like, Cause you basically, so you're Again, you're a pioneer in this. You're evangelizing to others. And you, you're right there from the very beginning of Massachusetts. So that's where I come from, too. Yep. What were some of the things that you, I don't know, what did you, getting your first license, what do you think was some of the, what you could, what knowledge can you pass on? And what do you think has changed? I don't know, just some of your observations, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think for myself, something I observed very early on, and it's still happening, which is bad, is the the predatory aspects of of those outside. So as a, a new applicant going through the process, you definitely get bombarded. And I imagine more so now that's a more robust market with people who say that hire me for a very large lump of sum and I'll get you the license. You can't do it without me. 
We heard that, I remember, on one of our first ever calls. And I think it was the fire I needed because I hung up that call and said, I can't do it without this guy. I'm here in mass. He's in another, He no, we can right. do it. So I hope, I hope when people hear our story and see us on the shelves and maybe have met us in the past or will meet me in the future, will know like, yes, you can, you can do it. And everything is, is laid out. It's just the, the biggest hurdle right now in Massachusetts is the HCA. And there's a lot of talk of overcoming that. And I think the, the biggest thing for anyone going through the process right now is while we haven't been able to fully fix the HCA issue. The whole, is that the, the host agreement? Is that, host community agreement, yes. So the host community agreement, again, if you're not in Massachusetts, I kind of, this it's like, it, kind of back to the can of law thing. It's like extortion. <laughs> and it, no, that's lawyers, what it is. Lawyers should be protecting their clients, but for years they have had to go along with these contracts because that's what it is. I know people are starting to push back. I know up in Haverhill, I think they're pushing back. Some of the other this dispensaries are saying, okay, if we're doing such horrible, terrible things to you and you need this impact fee, show us what you're paying it and they're not necessarily. So yeah, the Greece, the host agreements are tricky. Exactly. So <laughs> while those are still in place, you know, something we learned very early on because that was, you needed that was what I was kind of sharing in the beginning is go to a town that wants you. Mm -hmm. We have 351 towns and municipalities here in Massachusetts. In the very beginning, we had, I think less than half or just over half were yes. We've seen no communities turnover. So I think if anyone hasn't started their process yet in Massachusetts, really look at the towns that are going to help you succeed because mm -hmm. there's no point in setting up shop in a town that is going to make every single day of your life a living hell and cost you money because we're already seeing stores here, unfortunately, in Massachusetts go out of business. And there's a multitude of reasonings, but one of them is the amount of money they need to pay for this contract or the amount of money they're paying in state taxes. So that is some some advice I have is definitely don't don't be naive to the cost of these agreements you sign, these taxes that were held to pay, because that I think is what a lot of groups have maybe overlooked or didn't think it was going to be as egregious. And it, it's hurting them now. And it's terrible. Yeah, the business part of this is. Uh, I want to talk about happy things. All right. I, uh, I like talking about the brand more. The business, it is sad. It is no, very it is, because it, it's cost millions to get to the starting line and to, to be in the hole that much money as a small operator, as local, as any size operator, that's a lot of money to get anything open. And it's just very challenging here in Massachusetts specifically to even get to that starting point. And, and again, when you, we, this is a mistake we made, I say in Massachusetts, so having the medical come in vertical seed to sale, but only the certain people with a lot of money could come in and do it. And then they had a foothold and then they were ahead in the game and they're going to stay there forever because it's hard to come back from a deficit. And if we want this really to work, we make them have the deficit. <laughs> when there's, you know, this is what Shelley title was talking about, interstate commerce. We have to, I don't know how you do this, but there's got to be a way to figure it out. So smaller businesses have opportunities before bigger businesses. And I don't know how to run the world, but if we keep doing it the same way, it's just going to not work. No, I, I hear you. And, and it is one of those slippery slopes because as you do start making these things, you know that if the rules were to be operators under this size can do interstate commerce operators over, we know immediately there's going to be a lawsuit. We're seeing that in New York, right? We saw Maine get sued. They had a residency clause. MSOs oh, yeah. sued them. New York has dealt with Lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit. I will say though, some news that's some information is trickling out of 420, how sales went across the country, how sales went here in Massachusetts. But one statistic that was within this article I, I briefly read before this was talking about the the shares that these MSOs, so multi-state operators, which you can think of as more larger, vertically integrated, often got early start in the medical and are kind of those groups that are maybe championing the states to keep it a more competitive market for them. They are showing that their market share in markets like Massachusetts and in markets that are more competitive, they have less market share than in states like New York and New Jersey or Missouri, like these states that are very, they have caps on licensing. They still have a lot of the vertical integration. So you're seeing that as these markets open up and to be more free markets like Maine, like Massachusetts are doing, you're seeing these larger groups are shrinking their market share. So I think what that says, and obviously seeing Cureleaf close 
on the West Coast kind of points to the sign of it is very hard to compete in a competitive market. And it truly is only the cream rises to the top. I think we're seeing with some of these bigger groups that first mover advantage is wonderful. But if you don't keep it up and you don't keep innovating and making products consumers deserve and want, they're going to go on to the next best thing. And that is happening. And us small craft growers and processors are opening them with welcome arms because that's what we set out to do. Was short term, short term growth is not the thing. We're not we can't be just focused on short term, short term. That's like a bad it's it's bad for everybody in every level. So let's talk about all the awesome stuff you're doing, because, again, I talk about women my age and older literally know the least need it the most. We know how to shop. We'll go to these dispensaries. If we find a product we like, we'll buy it over and over again. Like I'm still, I go to a lot of dispensaries. So I always look for the products I know. And I always ask about, is it, are there any women owned? Are there any special, any of these products special in any way that connected to Massachusetts? Cause everything obviously is still Massachusetts based. So yeah. So what are you doing in that market? I know you have some great gummies. You're like, your, your gummies at CBN, I love those at night. I give those to my husband. But just tell me a little bit about what your products are doing and what you're coming up with. And I don't know what, what you see going on in the marketplace. Perfect. Yeah. So the products we specifically focus on, is we have a line of vaporizers. We do do our own extraction on site. So that oil we create goes into a vapor line and then also goes into our edible line. On our edible side, this is really where our, our bread and butter is. And this is where kind of the whole story started, as I alluded right. to, was we use only organic, fair trade, ethically sourced all natural ingredients. So that's really what sets us apart is we're creating a wellness product with you in mind and we're sourcing ingredients that fall under that umbrella. So our chocolate is um, single origin from Peru. It's a farm, comes from the same farm every time. It's ethically and sustainably sourced. They're being paid a fair wage for their goods. That is being processed not only under USDA organic, but also the EU organic certification. So we really are using what we feel are the best ingredients in the world. And we're making them even better by adding cannabis to them. Mm -hmm. Same with the gummies. No and they are delicious. I will say this is my one story about your chocolates is I actually don't take chocolates very often because they are so delicious. So I was recommended that I actually get a comparable candy bar if I'm going to eat <laughs> the edible. <laughs> <laughs> just so I have something else to eat. So just people be warned. They are really tasty and they will kick in. So that's, that's yes, they are real. They are dose. We test everything. I use my own products every night too. Obviously with sleeping being something that I've chatted about. I use our CBN gummies. I am very excited. I can't announce this because it's brand new in market, but we've had very limited marketing on it is that we have a new boysenberry gummy, which uses CBC which is another minor cannabinoid. It can kind of be nicknamed the enhancer. So depending what it's put alongside of, it can really amplify that. So in this recipe, we put it alongside a four to one dose of CBD and okay. one dose of THC. So that way it's really, it could be thought of like an aches and pains, anti-inflammatory relief gummy. Oh, that's and really- that, So that's a great thing for even any time, but you know, talking about the evening relaxation, and then we're also making at request of consumers, we're very excited for this, a CBN chocolate bar. Oh. So chocolate, you know, a lot of people, like you just said, chocolate's tasty. Some people hold back on it as a whole category. We are seeing gummies eclipse chocolate. But the funny thing is that don't a lot of people don't know is you definitely get a much better effect from chocolate. Chocolate in itself has shown to mimic when tested along a cannabinoid test, certain cannabinoids. So there is a thought, does cacao, because of the way it's grown too, have an endocannabinoid system? And maybe is that why when people enjoy chocolate, they do get these certain rushes of serotonin and happiness and bliss because are those matching up with our CB1 and CB2 receptors? I think so, because cannabis, if you put into a cannabinoid or chocolate in the test, does hit for certain cannabinoids. So I will say when people do consume chocolate, infused chocolate, I think the outcome is a lot better, especially in the evening. And again, it's such a lovely way to engage with it at a party or at a, I talk a lot, I had a high tea, like chocolates on the table to have a little chocolate. It's just a marshmallow and chocolate last night. Neither one was infused, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Next time this summer, when you're going to your friend's house, bring some Hershey bars and bring some coast chocolate bars for the adults. And it's really a fun way. And I think that's the best part about edibles is it is 
that idea of sharing, we can bring people together is still that social aspect like alcohol, where you can, everyone can consume, you can kind of notice the effects coming on and have a great time without the hangover and without the negative side effects that you do get from consuming alcohol. Oh, yeah. Alcohol and gambling. Don't even get me started. All right. Let's see. Oh, we've been talking for a long time. I have lots of questions. All right. How about women? Women in small businesses. And again, you became the person you wanted to be. You are evangelized. So you're out there. Your products are everywhere. I always see the displays. My friends might say, I mentioned it to them because I always recommend products. I will say universally, they've all tried it. And they're like, oh yeah, that's one of the ones I like. So again, Thank you. what do you, you see about small businesses, specifically in Massachusetts? Maybe what advice you're giving or trying to get more women into the industry and supporting them? Definitely. If you're in the industry, stay true. We are dealing in Massachusetts with a huge lot of market compression. There is a lot of competition. I, I think those like Coast and other brands that are putting their best foot forward, that are really putting the best products truly out there from that consumer mindset, keep going. Those looking to get in, please join. And that's the biggest thing for women is, is when Cannabis first started, we technically had the largest number of female CEOs as a, as a industry. That has shrunk since the industry has started, which it should have went the other way. And, and we're seeing it more and more in Massachusetts. So I will say, women, if you're listening, show up, come to these networking events, come to NECAN and trade shows, go to the stores. If you want to be involved, like, come, we want you involved. And I think the industry as a whole wants more women in here. The plant is female. The future is female. We need all the females in here with us. It's just something I talk about often with, with other women is how... How do we set an event that's not just women in cannabis, but is a, an event that makes women feel? Because when you put when you host events that are women focused, they come. When they're not women focused, they don't come. Why? And that's what I want to understand: is it comfortability? Is it you feel like you're going to be the only one in the room and you don't want to deal with that? That's what I want to overcome more because I want women to come and pack those rooms. I want I want men to feel uncomfortable <laughs> at the networking events and think they walked into a women's only <laughs> because often you walk in as the only woman and you're like, am I allowed here? Can I come yeah. in? And that's sort of my joke because I do only talk to women in the industry. So when I go to events and there are men, I'm always like, oh my God, there are men here. I had no idea. <laughs> and I will say I was at the Bong and Pong event the other day. There's lots of female representation, but I was there with a young woman who this is she's just getting into the industry and she was down in Miami at Benzinger and she was just like, she's like, there are a lot of guys there and she's a young, pretty woman. And I'm like, sorry, yeah. <laughs> and that's the tough part, right? Is we are seeing women come in, but we're often seeing them come in and, and not those decision-making roles. And I would definitely like to see more of that because we, I, I don't want to see this become the liquor industry where we have women in in certain roles because of how they look and because that gets business done. I don't- We want leadership. From, yeah, I came from liquor promotions. There was a, there was unspoken rules. You knew what you were supposed to wear without being told in, in less words. And I don't want that to be cannabis. And I think if we can make sure that that doesn't happen, and it is happening, but you're really seeing it in these markets where craft doesn't exist. You're seeing it like down in Miami. You're seeing it when people go to certain events. But when you come to Massachusetts, you know, I hope people are not feeling that as much. And I hope all we can do is keep working to make sure no one feels that ever here. But I, I do think in the markets where there's less people involved in the industry, you're seeing more so, I think, a lot of chauvinistic values being from the top down. Yeah. Again, so... I think this is an awesome industry for women like me. I feel like I'm the tip of the iceberg. I did everything. I leaned in. I got my degrees, blah, blah, blah. Then I had kids. Kids take a lot of time. <laughs> They're not good for your professional life. But we're back and we're still here and we're using it for health and wellness. And all my friends who have all sorts of amazing leadership skills, I'm going to a women in law at Northeastern University tomorrow on Friday. All those ladies there who are in leadership, they're curious about cannabis too. So I do think this is a really unique opportunity to build something that is, I don't know, a different leadership style. We're not imposing from the top down. We're part of the circle of cannabis. It's a big, we don't control everything, but <laughs> we can build a new industry that looks better and treats people nicer and is built in her image as a caregiver. That's what I dream and of. That's, 
I think that's the best part. In my lifetime, I was a little too young for the tech boom. I, I benefited from social media and all of that stuff. But this is the first brand new industry that we're seeing in our lifetime. So I think people really should jump on and be part of it because this we don't know when this next opportunity is going to come around to say we're going to build it the way we want it from the start. And that's an amazing part. And I hope that people will keep coming in with good intentions and knowing that you do have a chance to change this. Like this is a very new industry and everyone is trying to learn. And if we keep filling it with good people, then we can't help but create a good environment for everyone. Amen. Angela. All right. So your bars, your candies, your vape cartridges too. So they're all over Massachusetts. If somebody wants to find them, reach out, connect with you. How do they do it? Sure. So first, our website is coastcannabisco.com. We do have a store finder on there. You can also reach out to us directly from the website. Um, we're more than happy if you have a specific product you're looking for. Tell us where you are, what you're looking for. We will put you in touch with the store that has it. On social media, Instagram, Facebook at Coast Co. And I know you're just at the bong and pong. Are you going to any other events coming up? Actually, yeah, there's a really fun event happening. I'm not sure when this will air, so it might be. It's on May 20th, but it's happening in Kingston. It is called This Party. We will be sharing information about that on our social media, but it is bringing together various brands in Massachusetts for a fun outdoor event that is open to the consumers to come and, and interact with the brands. So, and then oh, that's a good one. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And then summer's upon us and we're in Massachusetts. So we got to take advantage of that. We'll definitely be out and uh, visiting our partners across the state and then hosting a few events of our, our own later in the summer. Oh, Angela. All right. So this was actually a delayed interview. She's supposed to come before, but I'm glad we actually finally got to do it. So thank you so much for joining me today. This was really fun. And um, I'm sure I'll be seeing you around Massachusetts cannabis world because that's where we are. I hope so, Joyce. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. All right. So another show. So for my guest, Angela Brown, and of course, my Cannabro, David Jazz, and our entire Cannabom Show team. And actually, I want to give a shout out to our social media manager, Teresa, who has been with us since the fall. She is graduating from the University of Arizona. So she's leaving us. And if you read the newsletter, she wrote a little goodbye and thank you. But we'll be working with Crystal Ortiz, so our social media. We'll keep going because I don't like it. All right. So from our team transitioning in new, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cannabom Show, where we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on the emerging cannabis industry by sharing and preserving their stories of love, kindness, wisdom, and hope. Thank you for following and sharing the inspiring stories of the women building this new industry. So together we can crush the stigma around cannabis and caregivers. I'm your host, Joyce Gerber. This is the Cannabom Show, and we are a production of Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season 1 of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.